Welcome back to True Crime Corner. I'm your host, Lisa Craven. Today's episode will be about the Stoudy family and how tragedy struck not once, not twice, but a whole bunch of times. Diane Stoudy was a God-fearing woman who lived in a quiet neighborhood in Springfield, Missouri. This area is considered to be part of the Bible Belt, and the faith runs strong down there. The Stoudy family consisted of Mother Diane, who was a registered nurse and also played the organ for the local church, Redeemer Lutheran, husband Mark, an accomplished musician who played in a blues band, and the couple's four children. Mark and Diane met in college, and in 1985, they married and began to raise a family with their first child born in 1986. They had three daughters and one son and lived a seemingly normal life in a small three-bedroom home. Diane was the breadwinner, and Mark decided to be a stay-at-home father to the children. Diane worked as a clinical supervisor with United Healthcare. Mark was the lead vocalist for a local band called Messin' with Destiny. He also played the guitar and the harmonica. Bandmates described him as a devoted family man who was passionate about music. The couple's only son, Sean, was diagnosed with autism and at the age of 26 was still residing in the family's home. Diane's work as a nurse was exhausting and she was beginning to feel the strain of the years of work begin to come down on her. The girls were 24-year-old Sarah, 22-year-old Rachel, and 11-year-old Brianna. All of the children lived in the home and Sarah, a recent college graduate, was unemployed while Rachel was attending college. Diane had a strong bond with Rachel and considered her the golden child because of her artistic abilities and her straight A's that she received in school. All seemed normal and fine until the year 2012, when a black cloud of seemingly bad luck would enter the Stoudy family home and never leave. On Easter morning, April 8, 2012, Diane was expected to be at Sunday church services to celebrate the Christian holiday as the church organist. She was there, and after the services ended, she left and headed home. When she arrived home, she found her husband, of 28 years, dead. Diane called the police to report the death, and they arrived shortly after. When police got there, Diane informed them that Mark had been feeling weak and hadn't eaten for the past few days. She said he was sleeping more than usual, and on the evening before, she checked on him, and he would only say a few words or not even respond at all. When speaking with police, Diane made sure to state that he didn't have any history of seizures, but he had suffered three of them just that day, and the last one that she was aware of was about 45 minutes before she found him and he wasn't breathing. The responding officer asked Diane why she didn't call 911 when he was having seizures, and she responded with, well, Mark told her he didn't want to go to the hospital. Upon initial inspection of the body, there were no obvious signs of injuries or major concerns, but they noticed he had dried blood around his mouth. The medical examiner ruled the cause of death to be from natural causes as a result of prior medical issues. He was 61 years old. As the community gathered to attend services for Mark, 
Diane took to Facebook and posted the following from the Gospel of John. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Mark's band played a tribute at the memorial service at the request of Diane. His former bandmates began to take notice of Diane's demeanor. She didn't come off as a typical mourning wife. She appeared to have no sadness, and instead she seemed more concerned about being the perfect host and making sure that the guests were all taken care of. She really showed no grief at all. Her well-composed attitude was something most people noticed, but reserved judgment as they were not aware of how she felt as they couldn't put themselves in her shoes, but they noted it as odd. After Mark's death, Diane received a $20,000 payout from his life insurance. She sold the family's marital home and moved into a bigger house in a better part of town. Just a few months after the death of Mark, the Stoudy family received another visit from the Grim Reaper. This time, it was Sean. The 26-year-old son, and only boy in the family, suddenly stopped breathing one night. Again, when police responded to the home, they were met with a familiar scene. A seemingly normal person one day suddenly falls ill for a few days, and now they're dead, and Diane is there telling a similar story. She stated that Sean was having flu-like symptoms lately, and she checked on him throughout the night. She made sure to mention that Sean had a history of seizures and had one recently. In the morning, she went to church, and when she arrived home, he was curled up on the floor with a blanket, and he didn't have a pulse. So she called 911. Upon inspection of the body, they did not notice any signs of trauma or injuries, but there was some dried blood around his mouth. Based on the information they received from his mother, they ruled his manner of death as natural causes as a result of prior medical issues. He was only 26. He died only 147 days after his father. No obituary was written for Sean. Diane kept posting to Facebook as per usual, but failed to mention Sean's passing until three weeks later when she posted, Today we remember Sean's life. May we have a portion of the peace he now enjoys. One month after the passing of her brother and only five months after her father, Rachel, the golden child, posted to her Facebook page, Don't think I've ever seen my mom so chilled like this in a long time. What she failed to post prior to that or any time after was anything reflecting her feelings on the sudden loss of her father and brother. Her family of six now became four, and her only thought worth posting publicly on Facebook was, wow, my mom is so chill. Interesting. Diane also posted on New Year's Eve of 2012 and said, year of change. She mentioned her late mother and how she passed 20 years ago that day and thanked her for being an inspiration for her musical talent and how she, quote, kept me from killing my brothers. I see a little part of her in my girls, end quote. As a frequent poster on Facebook, Diane's page is flooded with scripture and pictures of her obvious favorite daughter, Rachel. She also has quite a few of her youngest daughter, Brianna, and the many things that a mother will brag about. 
One daughter that seems to be non-existent, at least to the followers of Diane's Facebook, is 24-year-old Sarah. The one picture and mention of her gets lost among the rest, but it is there. You see Sarah standing there holding a diploma while wearing a cap and gown. She's alone in the picture, but she's smiling as big as any proud college graduate would be after all those years of hard work. That was in December of 2012. And in just six short months later, another post about Sarah would pop up on Diane's Facebook page. Except this one wasn't so positive. On June 9, 2013, she wrote the following. Asking for prayers as my daughter Sarah is in critical condition in ICU tonight. Over the next few days, Diane would continue to update her Facebook page with the progress and detail that Sarah was making and asking for prayers. Not only was she a widower, but she just lost her son, her only son, back in the fall. So the expectation from staff and onlookers was to see a person who was desperate for answers and in shock over what was happening to her family. They seemed to be dropping like flies, but that's not what they saw, and that's not how Diane acted at all. Instead, what they said was Diane rarely visited her daughter when she was in there, and when she did visit her, it was for short periods of time, and she would spend most of it engaging with the staff. The head nurse that was in charge of Sarah's care noted that Diane didn't seem all too concerned about her daughter's health and even noticed that she planned a vacation to Florida only a week later. She said that she planned to go with or without her daughter, and she even joked with the staff at times and seemed to be altogether in a rather good mood for a woman in her position. Diane considered herself to have a very close relationship with God. She was also very well known in the local church, she was the organist for them. If you take a look at her public Facebook page, it's still up as of the date of this recording. You can see that there's rarely a post that isn't riddled with scripture quotes or words from the Bible. Her faith clearly runs deep, and if you didn't know any better, this woman came across as damn near Christ-like. It's no surprise that with her relationship she has with the church, Diane is also fairly close with the pastor there. Days after her second child was admitted to the hospital with life-threatening injuries, the police received a call from that very pastor. He was calling them anonymously to express his concern with what had been happening over at the Stoudy home and wanted to let them know that he personally believed that Diane was somehow responsible for the death of her husband and son and now possibly her daughter. Investigators quickly responded and went to the hospital where Sarah was still receiving care. They interviewed the staff and found some chilling news about Diane's behavior and plans to take a well-deserved vacay while her daughter remained in the hospital, clinging to life. Doctors also told the investigator that the signs of Sarah's sudden and potential fatal illness could be a result of a possible poisoning because tests of conditions with similar symptoms were coming back negative. With this information, they approached Diane just a little over a week after her daughter was admitted into critical care and asked her to come down to the station for some questioning. In the interrogation room of a Missouri police station, the meek and small frame woman spoke to the detectives about her situation. Initially, Diane denied any involvement, but stated she was happy her husband was dead because, well, she hated him. And she kind of hesitated bringing Sarah to the hospital because, well, she wasn't really too fond of her either. 
Shortly after arriving, she was read her Miranda rights. It didn't take long for the truth to start coming out, and when it did, it was shocking. Diane said, quote, I'm horrible. I'm a horrible, horrible mother, and I regret doing it. I really do. I've screwed up everybody. I've screwed up my whole family, end quote. When asked about what happened, Diane confessed the following. She said it began in 2011, the plan. She had enough of her marriage to Mark, and she said she hated his guts and decided to get rid of him. She alleges that he would throw things at her and the kids, and she had just had enough. Her plan was to poison him with antifreeze because she had been researching how to kill someone and found that antifreeze isn't always something a medical examiner can easily detect. She didn't just simply go to the store and pick up a gallon of it, though. She actually took it a step further and decided to order it online because after doing her research on how to kill someone with antifreeze, she discovered that some states had adopted a new form where they added a bitter agent to prevent poisoning, making the taste recognizable and likely someone would not consume it. So she special ordered a batch online and began to dose her husband's Coke and Gatorade drinks with it. She said she used about a teaspoon at a time. Well, that worked so well, and it went so smoothly, she felt like, hey, why not get rid of my lazy pest of a son like that, too? She said her motive for killing Sean was just that. He was lazy, he trashed the house, and he never contributed to anything and was worse than a pest. He was more than a bother, in her words. What a good Christian woman. Now she is free from her husband, she despised of, her pest of a son, and she was down to just the three girls and herself. But that one daughter, Sarah, she was beginning to remind her of Sean. She wouldn't do too much around the house. She didn't have a job, even though she just recently graduated college. Those student loans were coming due, and Sarah didn't have a way to pay for them. So instead of having a discussion with her about this like a normal mother would do, Diane did the only thing that she knew worked. She poisoned her daughter, too, with the intent to kill her in the same manner she did her husband and her son just months prior. Except this time her daughter didn't die like the other two did. She was hanging on to life, and she was in the hospital for over a month. While all of this was going down, investigators decided to search Diane's home to see if there was any other potential information they were missing and to collect the evidence of her crimes that she was already confessing to. In the home, investigators discovered a purple diary. There were many entries in there from before the murders. One such entry caught investigators' eyes, and they were once again shocked when reading the passages. The following was written in the journal about one year before the death of Mark and Sean. Quote, It's sad when I realize how my father will pass in the next two months. Sean, my brother, will move on shortly after. It will be tough getting used to the changes, but everything will work out, end quote. Did you catch that? Yeah, those entries were not made by Diane. Those were actually made by Rachel, the 22-year-old daughter of Mark and Diane, and the sister to Sean and Sarah. So instead of a murderous mother and wife, they now have a mother-daughter duo who are both equally responsible for planning and executing the murders of Mark and Sean and attempting to murder Sarah. Investigators spoke with Rachel, who confessed her role in the crimes. She also stated that when they poisoned Sarah, they took her to the emergency room, but it wasn't out of concern or love or really even guilt. 
According to Rachel, it was because, quote, I didn't want another one to die in the house. Houses are nasty after somebody died in it, end quote. Rachel also told police that it was her mother who approached her with the plan to kill her father. She said at first she was reluctant, but ultimately agreed to help. She explained her motives for the murders as this, quote, as far as dad goes, it was for a little peace. Sean, because he was annoying. Sarah was just nosy, very nosy, end quote. Both women were arrested and charged with murder in June of 2013, the same month they attempted to murder their third victim, Sarah. Sarah survived, but will have long-term issues as a result of the poisoning. She recalls that prior to her mother and sister attempting to kill her, she found and read her mother's diary. In it, she remembers seeing that her mom was planning to kill her and her brother. Sarah confronted her mother and was told that she was being silly and not to read her mom's diary again. When Sarah was brought to the ER, her kidneys and brain were failing, and the doctors were baffled at what could be wrong with her. They were convinced that Sarah wasn't going to make it much longer, if at all. Sarah has severe neurological damage and had to relearn how to walk and talk. She still continues to recover to this day. When police told her that her mother and sister were responsible for her hospitalization and the deaths of her brother and father, she remembered feeling both shocked and upset. In January of 2016, Diane took an Alford plea, which is when a defendant acknowledges that there is substantial evidence against them, but won't admit wrongdoing. It is considered the same as a guilty plea in the sense that there is no trial and sentencing immediately follows. She took the plea for the charges of first-degree murder for the deaths of Mark and Sean and assault charges for Sarah's poisoning. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Rachel pled guilty to second-degree murder in May of 2015 as part of a plea deal exchange she worked out for testifying against her mother at her trial. She was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Rachel made a statement to Sarah at her sentencing, quote, I'm sorry I couldn't find the courage to stand up for what was right, to go for help, to protect you and our siblings. Your suffering could have been prevented and I hate myself for not being there for you. I want you to know that you are an inspiration to me, end quote. Sarah also made a statement at the sentencing to both her mother and her sister. She stood up and said the following, quote, I prefer to be a survivor than a victim, end quote. She also said she forgives them for what they did because forgiveness is the right thing to do. Sarah now lives in an assisted care facility and does her best to live as normal of a life as she can. And she is working towards her dream of being a French translator and walking the streets of Paris. Her youngest sibling was taken into foster care after the arrests. Redeemer Lutheran Church put the following statement out regarding the tragedy. The staff and members of Redeemer Lutheran Church were saddened to learn of events involving two of our members, Diane and Rachel Stoudy, the death of two others, Mark and Sean, and the injury of another, Sarah Stoudy. This is beyond our understanding and what we can explain. The congregation and staff have no more information than what has been reported to the media. We pray for God's wisdom and the guidance to all involved and for the legal system of our community. We grieve together but build trust in God. 
Our message is always the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ in a world darkened by sin. This will conclude the episode. Thank you for listening, and I appreciate the support. Please know that this podcast will have a new episode out every Sunday and Thursday. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and review. I do all of this on my own in my spare time, so I appreciate and read any and all feedback. Thank you. Take care.